It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 20th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British government is to make a declaration today stating that there is no basis in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement for joint authority with the Republic in the governance of Northern Ireland. Let's uh, speak to Peter McVerry of our sister station U105. And a very good morning to you, Peter. Thank you indeed. Uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This statement is to be made as part of the agreement that the British government did with uh, the DUP, as I understand it, and it'll be made by way of a parliamentary motion. Uh, will that be on bended knee to the King? Yeah, it's it's a thing called a humble address, not used that often, but it effectively allows the, 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 the Parliament to send a message to the King to accelerate something and to, to increase the importance of it. It will be debated in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, but on the few occasions in the last couple of hundred years that the humble address has been used, it's pretty much a done deal, even when it goes to the floor of both houses of Parliament to, to be discussed. And as you say, it is one of the concessions that the DUP managed to get from the government. And one of the issues that those within the unionist community who were opposed um, to the first of all the, the Windsor Fra- or the NI protocol and then the Windsor framework it was they felt that diluted and the active union of, of 1801 and made Northern Ireland in some ways a lesser part of, of Northern Ireland so they wanted that in legislation um, to be reflected that it hadn't weakened it and also as you say this will highlight that, that, that there's nothing in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement that leads towards or points towards um, joint authority for Northern Ireland. Will that call into question the foundation that the uh, Good Friday Agreement was built on? Um, we, we've a minimal reaction to it so far, Michael. It was only the, the Northern Ireland office issued to the press last night um, a bit of a heads up and embargoed to, to say that it would mm. be on the order paper for, for, for today. So very little reaction at this stage. I think they're waiting to see what exactly um, it, it, it brings. It's a it's a process mechanism, if you like. It, there will be the opportunity for it to be debated on the floor of the House. Sinn Féin, of course, don't take their seats in the House of Commons, so we won't hear within the parliamentary process, what they think, the SDLP will be there, and they'll very obviously have a view, and we will and do expect to hear in the next, you know, over the next day or so from the political parties on what their their particular view is. I suppose there's a lot of there's a lot of you know move, moving about on this, if you like, in terms of people's different perspectives. I don't think that we're at the stage yet where anybody thinks that any one single um, piece of legislation or one single measure will move things on in any one great direction. If you remember what the Good Friday Agreement did say, is that the potential for a United Ireland, you know, would exist if the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland saw a series of um, polls yes. which pointed for a majority of people within Northern Ireland wanting to have a referendum 
on the United Ireland. You know, we haven't seen that yet. There are still, even within that statement, there are areas in that that have to be uh, defined, you know, and, and how many polls and what number and over what period of time. For example, Michael, so, mm. you know, I think it will be it will be one thing that at least in, in the um, in the current political climate, um, given where we're at with Drummond, which will offer a level of reassurance to, to, to the DUP and will especially allow their leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, to point to internal opponents within his party and within unionism and say, look, this is what I've this is what I've secured. This is something tangible, something concrete yeah. that we didn't have under the previous. But whether or not it it it, um, it pushes away the um, the chance of a referendum on the United Ireland, or whether or not it it it, um, it strengthens the, the union for any longer than it was already strong then um, remains to be seen politically. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it certainly is a win for the DUP. It's a a very interesting uh, aspect uh, to the negotiations uh, that the DUP had with the British government, and I'm sure the DUP will be very pleased with it. I'm not so sure that people south of the border, and indeed many people north of uh, the border, will be particularly pleased with it, because people will also remember back to 1998 and amending Articles 2 and three of uh, the Irish Constitution and the Republic's claim to the six counties in the north as it would have always been perceived in this country uh, in return for joint authority. And how that is defined, of course, is a a different question. But joint authority has always been seen as a cornerstone, I I think, of the Good Friday Agreement in that Ireland, the Republic, would recognise that uh, Northern Ireland is a member of the United Kingdom but that it would have some role uh, in overseeing the governance of Northern Ireland. What is surprising about this, Peter, is that whilst this is coming to us today uh, as news, uh, because this motion is going to be tabled by the British government in the House of Commons today, Sinn Féin must have been completely aware of it because it is in the command paper. I'm reading that in the papers today, this safeguarding the union agreement that the British government did with the DUP. So, in effect, Sinn Féin has accepted it, hasn't it? Well, yeah, no no one said publicly, Michael, what exactly Sinn Féin um, knew about the detail of this. But you're right. Now, the other parties up here, for example, also Unionist leader Doug Biddy was complaining throughout the process that, that his party, as as one who were entitled to a place in the Stormont Executive, hadn't seen the colour of this deal until probably the night before it was it was being done and put on the table. But all of the indications from that is that the DUP and Sinn Féin um, had been given an indication of what was in there. And the timing of it, as you say, is ironic. Like, we're sitting here today... And the, the finance minister from the Republic is up in Belfast meeting Sinn Féin's finance minister, Kiva Archibald, um, at, at Stormont to talk about ways in which they might work together, to talk about the North-South Ministerial Council, getting that back up and running again. Um, the the, um, the cabinet today in Dublin are, are sitting down. They're expected to, to sign off and reiterate a commitment they gave previously. Um, we're expecting them at lunchtime an announcement that they're putting at least £400 million into the, the, the main dairy to Dublin Road. The F5 that have seen a lot of deaths, that's been announced before, but mm. it's expected to be reaffirmed. We may be getting an announcement today. The Irish government had previously committed money, um, along with the British government, along with the GEA, to the um, the rebuild of Casement Stadium, mm. which is taken on a priority now because the European Championships are, are coming to, to uh, here um, for some games in 2028. You know, so that those things are moving and we're, we're seeing involvement from the Dublin government and mm. financial uh, impetus in the Shared Island Fund. But don't forget... This this will have probably you know 
there's not a great relationship we understand at the moment between the Irish and the British government. So if you remember, the Irish government are still continuing to take that legal case over legacy. And Michal Martin spoke about that a couple of weeks ago and said, given where they were at with Stormont, you know, that case was going to going to continue. So I think that, that there are... It, Dublin and London had a sad relationship from the time of mm-hmm. Boris Johnson. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that 45 days in power gave Liz, Liz Truss much chance to make any difference to it, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Rishi Sunak has obviously it, it tried to do more uh, to it, but there is there is an issue at the moment between London and Dublin that they're not working as closely together as as they did historically. And I can't see a move like this. And while it's something that got the DUP on board and brought Stormont back together, I can't see it being a positive between the diplomatic relations between London and Dublin? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, we're looking at something that goes back over 25 years at this stage and perhaps I'm wrong, but as I understood it, a joint authority would have meant that the British government had overall governance as part of Northern Ireland, as part of the United Kingdom. But the Irish government, it was acknowledged, had a role and interest in Northern Ireland's affairs and a say in matters, especially those related to North-South cooperation in areas of mutual concern. And up to just a few weeks ago, we had Sinn Féin saying that if the DUP didn't take up their seats, well then, we'd have to look at at joint authority, joint governance of Northern Ireland by Dublin and London. Yeah, they did. And and, then people referred to that plan B, and just as you said at the outset of this interview, when they got as far as using the term joint authority, it was never in the context of what might happen if we hadn't got Stormont back up and running. It was never defined what exactly that joint authority would would look like. And I think that probably is the the important element for it going forward, depending on wherever we go and whether or not Stormont is any success or not, to say, well, actually, does joint authority mean, you know, Equal authority or equal control, or does it does it mean that Dublin would have a greater say uh, in the affairs of Northern Ireland than they might have had historically pre the Good Friday Agreement, which is something that the, the nationalist population in Northern Ireland, you know, w- would aspire to and, and would want, and, and it's actually you know the, the very fact that that, that was maybe set case in the park aside unless it's used for concerts, it may not be as many unionists interested in the GAA, but that road between Dublin and Derry, for example, is one of the most notorious in Northern Ireland for fatalities. That's going to benefit every single person in Northern Ireland. So, mm. you know, that, that, that there, there needs to be a recognition of the fact that some of these projects that will happen. Another one on the list today, Michael, is the is the bridge from Warren Point over Lomis mm. that's likely to get the green light and some more money for it. All of those things are benefiting every single individual and every single taxpayer in Northern Ireland, regardless yeah. of your religion and your political perspective. You know, so there, there is a positive in being able to, mm-hmm. to even put it as simply as, as tap into another source of money. Indeed, we'll be talking about the Narrow Water Bridge later in the programme as well as uh, the A5 in Casement Park uh, and how in the case of the Narrow Water Bridge it seems as though the Irish government is going to foot the bill without seeking a red cent of Stormont or London for that matter and that may raise questions uh, but is it that the DUP is more than happy to take Irish money uh, but not to take governance from Dublin? Uh- that may be one way in which you could portray it. I'm sure that the, the DUP would flag, they have flagged, for example, the communities minister here whose responsibility um, would include things like casement is a DUP minister, Gordon Lance. He's spoken, you know, in the past couple of weeks in Stormont and Running about the stadium. What he said is that there can't be a disproportionate amount of money spent on, on, on casement that wasn't spent on Windsor Park for the football, now known as the mm. National Stadium, and on, on Ravenhill, which was Kingspan up until a period of time ago. But, you know, those, th- those two things, the other sports outside the GEA were rebuilt, you know, 
across the last decade. The actual quote they got for the cost of casement has more than doubled from the initial cost, and that's where a bit of the standoff has been about who exactly is going to pay for it. But his indication had been that you know Northern Ireland shouldn't be slumping up anymore for it. Some people were saying that was because it was the DEP and it was GEA Stadium. Other people were saying that actually it's prudent financial management, and why should you be be lifting the cost for a stadium um, of that uh, of that size uh, in Northern Ireland? But you're right. The, the the DEP will obviously defend its position where we're at with this move and and with this um, humble address. Probably remains to be seen over the next couple of days as to whether or not it causes a major mm. political um, uh, split, or whether or not people think, well, actually, it it it, it was worth it to get it to get the DUP on board. And the reality is that, that all it is is another bit of you know another bit of paper, another bit of legislation. And yeah, the, well, it's, until, it's, it's a longer political game until Stormont collapses again. If it does uh, collapse again, uh, and I, I, I don't know, but I, I would imagine it's a legitimate question to ask how both governments are guardians of the Good Friday Agreement. If, in the absence of uh, politics uh, working in Northern Ireland, uh, that one of the guardians has no authority to deal with the problems of the people of Northern Ireland. Yeah, and then as you say, it will also be interesting. I know I spoke earlier about wanting to hear what Sinn Fein and the SDLP view on it was, but it'll be very interesting as well to hear what the the, the Dublin view is. And also, you know, we had heard the the the, the Taoiseach and the Tonishja uh, both talking about where the deal was at, and both talking about it being a deal between the DEP and the British government. So it'll be interesting to see how much detail um, was shared with them in advance on something like this humble address and what the view is now of the, the, the um, those in, in, in the political class in Dublin to say is it something that they can live with? Is it something that is blindsided them? And as we say, is it something that will make relations between Dublin, London by extension and Dublin, Belfast, London any harder? All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment and we'll be watching that space, as they say. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Peter McVerry of our sister station, U105. Our phone number, 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp, 0861800. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, michael Reed on LMFM. Respect transport workers. That's a campaign that SIP2 is launching today. And as you've been hearing in the bulletins, over a third of transport workers in this country believe abuse and antisocial behaviour is a serious issue. Let's speak to Adrian Kane, divisional organiser with SIP2. And a very good morning to you, Adrian. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, indeed, uh, I see 80% of transport workers say that they've been the target of some sort of uh, abuse. Uh, and more than half say that antisocial behaviour is an issue for them as they go about their duties. Uh, it's a tough job by all accounts. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Michael. Yeah, we, we, we conducted a survey of our members across the entire public transport network and it says probably one of the most extensive surveys that has been done. We had uh, over 600 people responded to it. And I think you've highlighted some of the takeaways from it, but probably m- more remarkably uh, and sad is to see that 50% of workers are the subject of antisocial behaviour, either on a daily or, or a weekly basis. And the problem is that it's getting worse. And the vast majority of people answered, thought uh, that it had got worse over the last 12 months. So we have a problem as a society, and our our members are at the front line of that. And uh, uh, the, the the way that I would see is there's a there's a cultural change taking place in society, and we need to call it out, and it needs to be stopped. We had a situation which was probably unique in this country where people 
thank the bus drivers that get off. Mm. But now we, we, we have increasingly this antisocial behaviour, um, racial abuse, sexual uh, inappropriate language being used, etc., which is not us as a people. Mm. And I think if you were to look at, you know, where there has been a transformation in culture, it's probably in in football matches right across Europe, in where racial abuse and turns was the accepted sort of uh, culture. And that was called out and it was stopped successfully. And this has gone on too long. And I think there, there's been a sea change since the pandemic. I think the incident in and the, and the riot in November was another one. And we have to stop this as a society. And we all have to work together to stop it. And that's what our Respect um, Transport Workers campaign is about, which we're launching um, later on this morning in Liberty Hall. Yeah, it's not just sexual language either, is it? Uh, I was reading uh, comments uh, from one of your members, Vanessa O'Keefe, in uh, the Irish Times uh, this week uh, about a racist assault on two female passengers that left one of them with serious facial injuries. But she also said that she's had women on her bus uh, who report that men have been masturbating in front of them on the upstairs deck of uh, the bus and asking her if she could do something about it and that uh, they uh, just uh, come on to the women uh, and then the women come down and ask if they can stand close to the cab until the men get off. They're that afraid of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, some of the... Uh, and we, we left space in this survey for people to to elaborate on their own stories. And, and some of it's a horror show. As, as as you just said there, and what Vanessa had, had talked about. So, I mean, we can bemoan this or we can try and do something about it. And what we're putting forward, and we have three asks for in our campaign. First of all, we're looking to establish what should have been established, going back to legislation in 2008, was to establish a National Transport Advisory Council which there was to be members of the Gardaí, uh, political represent- representatives, union representatives, customers of public transport, etc. That has never met. Um, and we're calling for the immediate establishment of that body. The second thing that we're looking for, there needs to be an increased focus on police. Now, we have called for this on numerous occasions, a dedicated transport police government has said no a hundred times. And I don't want to get into, we say this is what we're looking for and they say no, but we need an increasing police presence. That that has to be part of the solution in, in this situation. And the last thing that we're looking for is a transport charter in, in, in which there's a, a, a standard of behaviour expected towards transport transport workers. And we're also launching a badge today uh, invoking the spirit of Larkin um, with, with the red hand on it asking people, and it just says, respect transport transport workers. And we will be giving that out to our members across the public transport networks because we're taking collective agency as well in terms of, um, you know, transport workers were hailed during the pandemic um, and they need to be respected. And they, they do a, a job of work. And some of the stuff that they have to put up with there are very few other people uh, in society would have to put up with some of the stuff that they've had to, to, mm. to endure. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of it criminal, like throwing stones at, at buses. But if you take that a, as a, a very good example of antisocial behaviour by minors, uh, what can the police or a dedicated transport police force do about minors? Uh, do we need to look at how we deal 
with people under the age of 18 who behave in, in such a, a way and there's a long list of uh, complaints about minors on public transport, I think, apart from just throwing stones at buses. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen it. Um, a kind of gangs of young fellas running run, run wild uh, along to themselves. Um, I think that's a particular aspect of it. It's not the only one. Um, and how to deal with that, uh, I think, is, is difficult. And, you know, when I talk about, yes, the, the, there's the issue that we have with regard to transport, etc. It's a societal issue that, that is playing out on public transport. And as I say, if you look at some... You know, I think the best example is, as I've said, with regard to some of the racial torrents that used to be day in, day out with regard to um, football. That's gone because the authorities said we're not tolerating it anymore. And I do think that the, there there has to be that kind of sea change in terms of the state has to be seen to be effective in terms of getting people to, to switch on to public transport. I mean, the, the everybody agrees that public transport is a key part of tackling environmental issues, of in, of getting more people out of their cars and onto public transport, you have to make that a, an attractive place for people to move to. They're not if they if they experience some of the kind of behaviour that 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 I've seen um, using public transport over the last number of months. Mm. Um, but what can you do about youngsters? Yeah, I'd say that's a particularly tough one, um, Michael. Mm. Um, but 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 just giving them a free card and, and away you go certainly isn't the answer. And I do think you, you know we, we've tried to set our demands that we're not being prescriptive, but that body is really important for us for it to be established. That you have shareholders coming together and the the experts uh, either. You know, people in, in, involved in, in providing public transport, the customers, the police, the politicians, etc. We need to sit down and work this out. This can be resolved. Mm. Um, as I say, we, we have a, a unique culture in this country. I've never seen it anywhere else where people automatically just say thanks to the driver. Mm. That's the, the, the kind of culture that we want to want to promote and that people feel safe on, on public transport. Yeah. Mm. I don't think that's an awful lot to ask for. OK, well, there's youngsters uh, and maybe, as you say, there's people uh, who work with uh, the youth to be able to provide uh, some answers to that or perhaps um, people would like to see a change in legislation and uh, to see uh, people being... Uh, treated as adults at a younger age, I don't know. But what about those who are adults? Uh, surely the laws are in place already to deal with uh, the type of behaviour that your members are enduring on a, a daily basis, whether they're physically assaulted or verbally assaulted or somebody is masturbating on their buses or taking drugs on their buses or whatever uh, else is going on. Yeah, and uh, you can have all the laws in the world and they amount to naught if they're not enforced. And we, we see increased um, policing, increased security as being a part uh, of this to to bring about that kind of cultural change that we need to see on public transport. Mm. Uh, is uh, CCTV not a, a, enough in itself uh, to prosecute these people? Well, I think, again, that's kind of after the fact. And, you know, our emphasis is bringing about this being a safe place to, to work in. 
uh, in the first place, but a good experience for, for citizens as well. Mm. It probably is part of it, and, and we do have CCTV, but that is very much after the fact, as opposed to what we're trying to do through this campaign is to affect a cultural change. I hope that's possible. I mean, my sense of it is that you're talking about a minority of people and it's becoming a common story in the country that a minority of people in this country have problems with the establishment, they have problems with immigrants, they have problems with bus drivers or train drivers or somebody on the bus or the train or whatever the case may be. They've a chip on their shoulder and they're very angry and they're just ready to complain as soon as they feel that there's something to complain about and they're certainly not behind the door. They're probably more over the top than anything if that's what happens. So uh, I think um, whilst you're talking about a, a carrot, uh, I wonder, uh, is a stick necessary as well? And going back to that issue of uh, the transport police and prosecuting people. Well, I, I definitely think that policing and increased policing is part of it. But, but you are playing out uh, and seeing played out in public transport societal tensions that are taking place. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the, the trade union movement has an important part to play in that. Certainly, you know, huge inequities have arisen in our society. There are tensions, racial tensions. Um, It's a difficult space that we're going through. And it's incumbent upon leadership, you know, across the country to take a a real leadership role in relation to how we manage that. And, you know, those larger societal inequities have to be dealt with. They're real. They're tangible. But it's a case also that we have to have common decency, which this country, I, I think, is one of the things that we'd be most proud of. Um, and we have to ensure that that happens. And for the people who get us to work every day, who are there during the, the, the worst of the pandemic, deserve a little bit of respect and deserve to be able to go about their, 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 their work and not subject to some of the abuse that, that you, you know, you, you quoted there from, mm-hmm. from our survey, Michael. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Adrian, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Adrian Kane, divisional organiser with the SIP2 Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Interesting story in the Irish Times uh, today about learner drivers who've been disqualified uh, from driving. 1,892 people driving on learner permits had been disqualified in 2023, but only 70 surrendered their licences. That's 5%, as I say. That's according to the Irish Times today, and it's uh, following on from a parliamentary question that was submitted by Social Democrat TD Catherine Murphy. Let's speak to Susan Gray, founder of the Road Safety Group, Park. Good morning to you, Susan. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I know you're not going to be surprised by that data, uh, how few learner drivers have handed over their licence after being disqualified, 70 out of 1,892, or just 5%. But can you explain to us how it's happening? We believe it's because the Road Safety Authority, our single licensing authority in Ireland, are not following up on when they're being disqualified in court. They should be. They should have a proper fit-for-purpose uh, system in place, whereby the learners must and do surrender their permit to the RSA. At present, as I've often said to you in the programme, 
the the system they have in place is not fit for purpose. The learners asked to post the permit back to a PO box in Cork to the RSA. That's a ridiculous system. Mm. It's not working. We're telling them time and time again. It is not working. And what is the road safety authority doing with it? Nothing. It's shameful. Like, them figures you give um, 70 out of uh, 1,892 surrendered, that leaves 1,822 learner drivers that were disqualified in our courts last year holding on to their permit. And tell me about the 1,822 drivers uh, who've held on to their permit. Are they insured? Well, they're disqualified, as RSA keeps saying. Um, If they're disqualified, they're disqualified. But who's identifying these disqualified drivers that hold on to Mm. their permit? But their insurance should be invalid, uh, I take it. It should be, but the insurance companies, are they aware that these people... It it is a minefield. The whole system is so broken, Michael, that they have to go back to basics and they must follow through from the day somebody receives penalty points by the guardian at a checkpoint or if they're disqualified in court they should follow through what happens they should monitor all this all the agencies should be working together feeding in to a main database and they would surely very quickly find out where there is loopholes or where people are easily slipping the net we're tired advertising it and advertising it through um, PQs that we asked Catherine Murphy, the TD, to raise first. That latest PQ we asked Catherine to raise a few weeks ago because we had the figures for earlier years and we just wanted to see. Mm. If maybe in 2023 the figures weren't as damning, but they're doing nothing about it and they're the single licensing authority. Like, how would you have confidence in that? Seriously. So, um, we'll just keep highlighting. We're doing loads more work now, Michael. And thank you so much for always following everything we do and highlighting it. Mm. We'll let you know there's more PQs. And now, through we've sent them in to Catherine asking her to raise them. And uh, we will just keep highlighting because Minister Chambers is bringing in new laws now and they need to look at the current laws that are failing right left and centre if they honestly think that the new ones are going to work so uh, we well, just keep a, on fighting the fight uh, well it is a question of safety and that's where your interest lies and uh, I'm sure it uh, lies in the interest of, of our listeners as well and our art roads safe for all of us to use uh, given uh, that there are people uh, who you'd have to assume are driving on the roads who've been disqualified from driving. Uh, and and I, I take it uh, that uh, that's not easily done. I mean, it's a fairly serious thing to be disqualified. Um, you need, how many penalty points is it as a learner driver? Seven penalty points and they're disqualified. Okay, and that would be for Whereas all... a fully licensed, that's 12. 12, yeah. So, so that's yeah, for speeding and... 
driving without a seatbelt, mobile phones, drink driving, I I take it, included in that? That's an automatic ban. That's an automatic ban. So some of them would uh, have been drinking and driving, quite probable given the number, uh, close to 2,000 people on a learner permit in a year. Uh, being disqualified to me that in itself is shocking um, why uh, are, are people misbehaving on the roads uh, when you're only learning to drive what is it that makes learner drivers think that they're alright driving if they have drink on them or they're alright driving above the speed limit when they're still only learning what's gone wrong there do you think because they know they tried and tested the and I think a lot of them know the system is so broken. And we haven't got the guard resources out there to catch them. Um, they're out in force long weekends and holiday weekends. But all drivers need to see them continually, hmm. every week, with many checkpoints throughout Ireland. So, and it's just not happening. Hmm. So there's a huge... Um, there's a lot of issues that have to be sorted to make the road safer. Like in Tipperary alone, when we did the looked at the stats that Kathy Murphy got first, Tipperary last year, Michael, seen the highest number of road deaths, 16. And yet last year alone, 111 learners were disqualified in court in Tipperary. And only three surrendered their permit. Hmm. So, how many times do we have to ask PQs and for the, thanks to the media, for highlighting system after system that is broken before the authorities actually tackle that? Rather than when deaths go up, bringing in a new law. Mm. And thinking that's it, without really looking back at the past laws that are not that are not working. Yeah, well, it would seem that if uh, people have been told to surrender their license and they don't, uh, that that could be easily followed up. I, I take it that's the type of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, um, it's RSA's responsible, no responsibility to. Uh, we believe to ensure that they receive the learner permit, which they hold on till until the disqualifications up, and then return it to, or the <laughs> learner driver um, mm. issue is totally different to the fully qualified learner, fully qualified drivers. But if we have a situation where the vast majority are not either not surrendering their driving license and disqualification or their learner permit and disqualification, then without doubt, Michael, we have a huge, massive problem on our roads. Now, if the Road Safety Authority played their part, it would ensure far less work for a guardie out there trying to catch those driving while disqualified. If the licence was surrendered or the permit, it would encourage a lot of people not to take the chance. Hmm. They have no license or permit. But yeah. 
Here we are again, uh, having a similar conversation to the last conversation we had, Susan, and indeed the one before that. And as you say, uh, you don't want to be having two more of uh, these conversations. You want action rather than talk. We leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. Susan Gray, founder of uh, the Road Safety Group at Park. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Stephen Athboy on that subject saying, a lot of these so-called learner drivers are older seasoned drivers who never bother sitting a test. Yeah, well, they shouldn't be driving unaccompanied uh, and therein uh, makes the law an ass uh, for uh, another reason, Steve. Uh, You're absolutely right. Somebody else saying, uh, Michael, talking about taking uh, public transport, I know of a case where a passenger went to Drogheda bus station at 5.30 in the evening to get a bus to Blake's Cross. Didn't get there until 8 p.m. Uh, our caller says this was because the driver wouldn't start the journey until he had his break after getting caught in traffic earlier. The bus station is a joke. Uh, they'll not answer the phone so much for public transport. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us this morning too. Paddy says what people may not know is that Kevin Backhurst, this is the new Director General of RTE, is no stranger to RTE. He's an RTE insider. Prior to his appointment as Director General, he previously held the position of Managing Director of News and Current Affairs and Deputy Director General at RTE from 2012 to 2016. And during that period, he was Acting Director General for a period of six months. So he is very familiar with the goings-on of how things were done in RTE. New broom, my arm can't say that, uh, says Paddy. Uh, RTE has been treated as a, a private fiefdom by the executives and the so-called talent. It's obvious the peasants, a.k.a. the ordinary staff, were treated terribly. By the way, uh, an obvious question is, did Kevin Backhurst get a golden handshake when he left RTE in 2016? So make of that what you will, says Paddy in his message to us. Thanks very much, as always, for your text 2086 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, exit payments at RTA are top of the agenda today and they'll be discussed uh, by the government at its weekly cabinet meeting. Let's uh, speak uh, to Neve Smith, Finnefall TD for Cavan Monaghan, who's chair of the Oroctus Media Committee and on the line. Good morning to Neve. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, as always. Uh, Kevin Backhurst uh, wants to know why is it that politicians want him to bring the law. He does have a point, doesn't he, given that uh, these are legally binding agreements that have confidentiality clauses in them. Okay, good morning, Michael, and and thanks for having me on. Um, I have to just take you back to where this all began, and it began around issues to do with transparency, oversight, and a lack of openness with RTE, um, with both the committee and probably with the minister too in the past and um, we were promised when this all started the new DG the new chair of the board itself promised faithfully to us as a committee and to the public more importantly that um, never again would we see what happened in terms of secret payments that were made for Ryan Tuberty for work that was not completed um, that we would have the openness and transparency and 
Our hearing last Wednesday was in front of RTE's own reports, one about the toy show The Musical, which we now know was a significant financial loss to RTE of over two million, and around the exit packages. So we're talking about two reports that are continually hemorrhaging money from an organisation that is continually coming before government looking for further funding. So I would just, to answer your question to begin with, I would say that... um, there is no way, way in my mind that Kevin Backhurst or the people, the individuals and the executive members he was doing these exit deals with did not anticipate that a question of what that exit package uh, curtailed or what was involved in it or the, the value of them. Um, knowing that this the debacle started around a lack of overness, uh, openness rather, and transparency. So um, I think that's the most disappointing part really for mm. me, that despite all that, he didn't enter into negotiations. It would appear, and I can't say categorically because we haven't got to interrogate this enough with the board, but it would appear with the approval of the board to have a secret, so, so, the confidentiality mm. clause is mm. more appropriate, uh, written into their actual uh, exit packages, whether it be redundancy, resignation, or exit um, and look at it that's not to say that yeah. we as a committee or the public are naive to not think that there's a cost um, Im- implication for RT but it's about knowing what that cost is mm. uh, Who do you think would propose or seek a, a confidentiality clause in these uh, agreements? Well, I don't know, but I mean, obviously, Mr. Collins certainly did ask for a confidentiality clause, but more worryingly, RTE itself agreed to it. And that's, I suppose, the bit that really sticks with me in the sense that, you know, I just can't see how the DG or the board would have seen this being this particular piece being an issue. And we're not talking about the figures at all. And as mm. I said, there's nobody would be naive to think that this could be a cost neutral exercise for RTE. It is not easy when you're working in a semi-state company, we have some of the toughest employment laws in the world here in our island of Ireland. Ireland. And um, so we know there's always going to be a cost and it's not easy to um, exit people from an organisation. But these are the very people who are the centrepiece of the revelations and the debacles around RTE. So, you know, um, I think it is reasonable of the committee, the minister and the public to expect that while these people are leaving the organisation, there is a mess left behind for a new DG to clean up. There is a mess left behind for a new board to clean up. Um, there's none of us are saying that would be at no cost to RT, but what mm. we are saying is we are entitled to know what that cost is. And that RTA should be able to stand over why it Absolutely. has paid out so much, whether that's 200,000 or 450,000 euro. And a, a lot of people will ask, well, why did you give golden handshakes on this scale? Uh, but you can't ask those questions if the information isn't in front of you. And I think that's the point that you're making. Mm, absolutely. Um, and we know from the last hearing um, that it, it first we were told we couldn't be, that the information around Brida O'Keefe's pack, ex, exit package, the amount couldn't be divulged, but 15 minutes later it was shared with the committee and proper order. So I suppose that doesn't help um, that inconsistency across the board with all the executive members who have left the organisation. And we have to remember, like, the 2.2 million was an extraordinary loss to organi- uh, the organisation on an idea that clearly didn't work, that clearly had red flags long before it went to stage, that was going to have huge outgoings before they made one penny. And the people who 
um, this was the brainchild of and who were so determined to drive on with this at whatever cost and circumventing um, the balances and checks that the boards should have been able to put in place to say you can't continue with this because this is going to be a disaster. Mm. They're the very people that committed to us at the beginning that <clears throat> no more would there be secrets or would there be sort of um, anything happening behind closed doors that everything would be opening. So when I say that I'm thinking of Mr. Covey and Mr. Collins yep. the Chief Financial Officer being in front of us in the committee and collectively agreeing to having an open and transparent relationship with the committee with the public and the minister and yet and all when it came to their um, turn and, and um, opportunity, if, like, if you like, to leave the organisation, they were all leaving with handsome um, packages. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But then to add in a confidentiality clause just adds insult to injury to the mm. public who are watching on and we are trying to convince to pay a TV licence for. Mm. And why have they left with such handsome financial packages uh, as you put it, Neve Smith? I mean, it's on a different scale, but if I lost 2.3 million euro uh, working for this company, if I was responsible for some project that resulted in a loss of 2.3 million euro for LMFM, I wouldn't expect them to say, well, you know, time for us to part ways. Thank you very much. Here's 200,000 euro. Yeah, no, I know that. So I think those who were offered packages should have been very grateful to say thank you very much, more maybe than I deserve. I accept my, I have to leave the job. Thank you. Goodbye. But to insist on having a confidentiality clause, to insist not making the figures uh, available to the public is a step too far for me and I think it'll be a step too far for the Minister and for the public at large as I said that we are trying to rebuild confidence in and the importance of our public service broadcasters so you know my only advice to the DG and the Chair of the Board would be come out with the information quickly do not deliberate on this anymore. If the legal advice was that you can enter into that, it was poor legal advice in my mind because there is no way that they couldn't have anticipated. It was the next obvious question. You've moved these executives out of the organisation. At what cost has that come to RTE? And that is mindful mm. of the fact also, Michael, that in, we have the toughest employment laws. Nobody wants to be going down the route of court cases because that just yeah. costs more money and anxiety and costs your resources. The easiest way to do it is to come to an agreement. But I find it very difficult mm. to swallow Mr. Collins or Mr. Covey not only getting handsome packages, you know, I could nearly live with that, but this idea that we won't tell the minister or the public what that's going to cost already is a step too far in my would, mind. Would it cost twice as much if they hadn't been given such handsome packages? Uh, that seems to be the point uh, that the Director General of RT is making because it would go to the WRC and, and then there would be those legal costs involved as well. Do you subscribe to that opinion? I do, I do. And that's why I say, like, you know, I appreciate he's got a really mammoth task to bring in a new uh, leadership team. Um, I know Adrian Lynch has subsumed the job that um, Simon, or that rather Rory Coveney um, was doing. And I, as I said, it, there's nobody has false expectations or looking for miracles either. We do know it would have be, always be a cost to RT and it would be the better option to do that than to go down the route of the WRC or into any legal battles with anyone. And that would be continual reputational damage for RT. But what I would have expected was, and I would expect of the executive to have left the organisation to allow the DG, and I would ask them even at this point to waiver um, the, the confidentiality 
confidentiality clause to allow the DG to be forthright and honest with the minister as to what this has cost. I mean, the minister, the minister should know what this has cost in her department. Mm. Uh, Paddy Duffy was texting us earlier this morning asking uh, about uh, Kevin Backhurst himself and if uh, he might have received a golden handshake or an exit payment at some stage following his various roles in uh, RTA over the years, including uh, acting director general for six months. Well, that I don't know. And I know one of the colleagues, one of my colleagues on the committee, Alan Dillon, has made the request, and I think it's a fair one, uh, for all exit packages to be, um, all those agreements to be made public to the committee and to the minister um, back as far as 2016, I think is what he's requested. Mm. And I do think that would be useful and helpful. And again, I have to emphasise, I would think it would be foolhardy of the DG not to have anticipated those questions, particularly in light of their own Commission report on exit packages, that the cost, the monies involved, the taxpayers' monies involved would be an obvious question that would be uh, an obvious requirement in terms of information for the Minister and the Committee. Mm. Uh, do you want RTE to do uh, what uh, Kevin Backhurst did in uh, the case of uh, Breda O'Keefe and uh, state what was paid or do you want those who receive these exit payments uh, to allow their details uh, to be made public Uh, because if they don't uh, you are talking about a a breach of contract aren't you or breach of the agreement yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think, and I mean, the, the very people that we know um, got these exit packages, you know, here and now within the executive who have been, you know, moved out of the organisation would clearly understand how helpful it would be. And they clearly understand how difficult of a position they're leaving the DG and the board uh, of RTE to not uh, waver that opportunity to be um, open and transparent about what the uh, exit packages were. As I said, there's nobody expects they were for free. We know that that's not the real world and we know to go down the legal route would be really expensive uh, to RT and the taxpayer but as I said I do think it's a fair and reasonable expectation that we do know what the cost to RTE was and I do think it was foolish and uh, as I said we haven't got to interrogate this because this really only became apparent towards the end of our hearing on Wednesday and I think that if there are further hearings um, it would be very obvious for them to expect that all figures would have to be on the on the table, all exit packages would have to be on the table because there's big decisions for government mm. to make in terms of what the future funding of RTE is. Big, big decisions and how that is done. And, you know, you can't expect a minister or a government to make those decisions with this, you know, going on in, in, in the public domain as well. All right. Well, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, it's Thank uh, you, Michael. a story that never stops giving. Thank you very much. Uh, Neve Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, Chair of the Oireachtas Media Committee. Some comments coming to us. Uh, we'd uh, a text uh, from somebody who says uh, when it comes to disqualified learner permit drivers, ask for a breakdown of what they have been disqualified for and by age. Interesting questions, I think. Uh, Mag Y in touch saying, Michael, the law is not an ass. 
implementing the law is an ass. Every time there's a problem in Ireland, a new law is manufactured. Thanks uh, very much for that. Uh, another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, I, I know somebody who's banned, disqualified from driving uh, and they did hand their licence in. Well, they're one of uh, a small number, just 5% of, that's if it's a learner permit driver, uh, 5% of those who were disqualified last year have surrendered their licences uh, but uh, I think uh, good to hear that as well thank you indeed uh, for your message to 086 1800 658 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM Well traffic at Kilmoon Cross uh, this morning was a, a nightmare I know that but I wasn't there uh, it'll be a nightmare again this evening I know that in advance uh, because it's a nightmare every morning and every evening and it's going to continue to be a nightmare it seems indefinitely let's uh, speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD Darren O'Rourke who's on the line and a very good morning to you uh, the reason I say it's going to be a nightmare indefinitely is because you were told by Transport Infrastructure Ireland that there's no funding or alternative proposal in place to solve the problem at Kilmoon Cross Yeah that's the case Michael and it is hugely frustrating for people, this is something that has been on for a long, long time, and as as you say, it's as sure as night follows day that there will be traffic jams at Kilmoon Cross in morning and and the evening, and it's reported on the hour um, on the uh, on the radio, um, and it is hugely frustrating for for the thousands of commuters who are affected by it, um, and to add to that frustration, uh, Transport Infra- Infrastructure Ireland confirmed to me. Um, which we did know to be the case that there isn't funding for this project, um, so it's it's not going to progress to phase three. It is has essentially run aground due to lack of funding from government, um, and to to make matters worse. And this is my call, and, and why my why I'm raising it again is that we we seem to now be at an impasse, an impasse. With the, with the minister and the department um, who have a view on the project and a view on roads projects generally. Um, and Mead County Council, caught at the other end, who have to live by a rule book that is handed down to them by the, the department. And um, But there are no proposals in the meantime to address it. So what I'm really saying to to all of those, you know, to the council and to the minister and to the department is to find some solution in the meantime. And there's lots of people, anybody that I speak to who uses that uh, road on a daily basis says to you, is there anything we can do in the meantime? Can we do, can we reconfigure the lights? Can we work within the existing configuration? Can we put a roundabout in place? Can mm. we add half an extra lane on either side of the road? Can we put a park and ride in, pl- in place? Can we improve the public transport connection mm. on it? Mm. Like all of those, I think, are legitimate questions mm. that haven't been pursued and explored and certainly haven't been implemented by by the council or by the, the roads authorities. And, and, any, and of, any of them would make a, a difference around about would seem the most obvious. Uh, is that too expensive or why is that not being looked at? No, and, and that's something that, that we need the answers in, rela- in relation to. My understanding is that um, when the the council are faced with um, uh, uh, the, 
the problem that they have, that they have to live by a rule book then in terms of coming up with solutions in relation to it. Um, and the solution that they have come up with is an extension of the, the M2 motorway. Now, that is obviously hugely expensive. It's um, hugely mm. intrusive in terms of the building element of it. Uh, and it's you know something that that isn't funded. But really, what, what I'm calling on the on the council uh, in the short term to do is to explore all of those alternatives. A roundabout in the first instance, mm. Uh, mm. Um, you know, a reconfiguration within the existing configuration. So something within the the alignment that's there, you know, the, an alternative to a new road. Um, the argument, and, and mm. I think this is the real pushback from government at the minute, is that you know if you build a new road it induces demand for you know with with, with cars um so so they're they're far more positively disposed to you know public transport and active travel but there aren't mm. public transport options on that route there aren't active travel options mm, on that route not, no. there isn't a park and ride there yeah. isn't a, a reliable bus service so the council wouldn't be permitted in buying some of the adjacent land and putting more lanes on the existing route yeah well well that that's one of the options that that they should have looked at, and in my understanding, they have looked at in terms of their assessment, uh, bringing the project, bringing their proposal. As you know, they're they're at the phase now where they have identified uh, a preferred uh, route, um, a preferred design in terms of the configuration. And what I'm saying to the council now is, they need to go back to the drawing board. Um, but they need to be given license by the department uh, and the minister to do that, mm. um, because the frustration I hear, in fairness to the the council um, uh, planners and the the roads uh, uh, staff, they recognise that when they come with a proposal that says we need an extension of a motorway, that that's not going to be um, well received at the department. Um, but they know at the same time that it is the only proposal from their perspective that ticks all of the boxes that's set out to them in the rule book. Um, and what I'm saying to the minister is, if you're saying, and he he has said to me that um, an extension of the M2 motorway um, isn't the, the, the solution that he would like to see, well, then I'm saying to him and to the department, well, what is the solution you're talking about. If you don't want an extension of the motorway, if there's something else that you think is is going to deliver the same outcome, because from my perspective, when I listen to people, you know, the vast majority of people aren't roads engineers. They're not traffic planners. No, but they're experienced drivers. Exactly, Mm, exactly. They see the Mm. congestion day in, day out. If there's an alternative solution there Mm. outside of sitting in traffic or rat running through um, neighbouring towns and villages Mm. and Mm. or taught or elsewhere yeah. um, well then well then spell it out and implement it yeah, and, and yeah, in fairness yeah, I mean there's a applied logic in other words uh, and all of the suggestions uh, you've heard uh, I suppose are, would seem obvious to anybody who's driving the roads uh, on a regular basis and then stuck at Kilmoon Cross every morning and every evening Absolutely and I, and I suppose I would have a concern I would have a concern that Mead County Council are pursuing a strategy here that says we believe the right solution here is an extension of the motorway. And if we do anything in the meantime to alleviate uh, the the, the traffic congestion, well, it reduces the business case that we have for the extension of the motorway. 
I hope that's not the case. I've, I have no indication that it is the case. But one thing I haven't seen, and it's not only me, I know council uh, colleagues on the council have been chasing this from you know all parties and none for for some time, is show us the uh, the the evidence that these alternatives that we're all suggesting don't work, and we none of us have have seen that. Like so, they could, for example, pilot. Uh, a, a roundabout. They could, for example, pilot, you know, uh, um, something on the existing alignment without buying, buying. You know, you, you see in, you know, Upper and Castle Blaney, they have two and one um, configurations. You know, mm-hmm. in other countries, they alternate those. Um, we could look at the sequencing of the of the lights. There are people that say that the, the traffic flows better when the lights are off, but at the same time, I I, I know there is a yeah. safety concern with of people course. coming out onto mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 the but the point is that the point that at the minute there is an impasse there's traffic congestion on that road yeah. and it can't and be night. all or nothing I mean that exactly. seems to be the case you're making exactly. that it's being looked at whether it's all or nothing and there isn't the money for all which is the extension of the motorway so the result is that there's nothing and nothing will change exactly and I, and I would make the point if, if, if the minister has a particular whether it be ideological or whatever reason, and he's entitled to that perspective in terms of if a road isn't... Well, well then use the, this section of road as an exemplar. Show, if, if you have a, an opinion that you can get people out of their cars and get them onto public transport, well, use this section of road as an exemplar. Put the park and ride in place. Put the, mm. the excellent public transport services. Let's see how many people we okay. can move out of their cars. Um, but we're seeing none of that. Okay, I want to move to a separate subject, uh, if I can, because you're also highlighting today how there are fewer Gardaí in County Meath as we speak than there were 15 years ago. Yeah, that's, this is something, and it, and it is quite in, incredible. I know it's something that comes up on a regular basis in terms of Meath being the county with the lowest number of Gardaí per head of population in the state. But actually, that's a situation now that is incredibly getting even even worse. Um, so we had confirmed yesterday, and I think, t- t- in fairness to the Garda management in, in, in Meath, you know, it is very frustrating from their perspective. Um, they are doing their best um with, with what they have, um, but right around the county, and we're all busy in terms of being, being out and about m- meeting people, um, right around the county, I, I hear a, a theme, a consistent theme of you know lack of guard of vil- visibility, lack of guard of presence, you know, increasing sense of unease, uh, sense of uh, uh, safety, and um, you know whether it be antisocial behaviour or, or criminal activity, um, and a lack of guard presence. Uh, as a deterrent and a lack of of um, what what people would perceive as as a comprehensive response from from Gardaí. and we have the situation now where there are 303 just 303 sworn Gardaí in County Meath. Way back in 2009, um, there were there were more than that. There were 315, and we know that the the population of the county has increased something in the region of. 50,000 people in that period and that just shows you with the best will in the world um, people are not going to see you know, busy stations, stations being opened 24-7 uh, Gardaí on the roads, Gardaí in communities um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it highlights to me in stark uh, reality um, that, that 
there is a, a crisis in, in the Gardaí, um, there's a recruitment and retention crisis, and that County Mead is at the the, the absolute uh, front line in relation to that. And what, what I can say as well, looking at, at, at figures year on year, like Mead um, is, has the lowest number of Gardaí per head of population. But actually, when we look at you know those those other counties in terms of their recruitment, um, they're doing as well or better than Mead um, over the last year. So in other words, Mead has the lowest number of Gardaí per head of population and we're getting further and further behind because I can look at Waterford, which is the best ratio. Last year they got uh, um, more guards than Mead that did. The, the counties in around us, Kildare, Carroll, Kilkenny, um, similar to that, they got more Gardaí than, than Mead did overall or their net, their net uh, um change mm. last year versus the year before was more or very similar to, to County Mead and that just tells us that we're not making progress in relation to this. Now this is something that, that I have raised with the Minister. She says it's an operational matter for Angarda Siakon in terms of their their uh, uh, resource allocation. We raised this with the Chief Superintendent yesterday. He pointed to some really stark statistics. Mead, the Mead area, has the highest number of calls per service. So it's without doubt that we have a need for additional Garda resources beyond what has been, been added to us. But there is a, a, a resource allocation model at Garda HR. It looks at pulse activity. It looks at a number of factors. But it also looks at, as so often is the case, legacy activity. So mm. in other words... What did you get last year and the year before and the year before? Similar to the, the type of block allocation that that um, used to used to be applied in the HSE and uh, other other public services, and that's a model that just simply has to go. We have to look at the here and now. What are the demands on services? What are the population needs? Okay. And resources need to be allocated. Uh, 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 and as you say, it's a matter for the commissioner. We'll leave it there for now. But thank you, as always, for joining us on the program. That is Sinn Fein TD for me. The star in O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as uh, you've been hearing uh, this morning, the Cabinet is meeting as it does every Tuesday, and as always, there's a number of issues uh, for it uh, to look at. Uh, and indeed, one of uh, the most significant issues that uh, the Cabinet will be asked to sign off on today is funding under the Shared Island Project. This will result, amongst other things, we're told, in funding being made available for the Narrow Water Bridge, the A5 motorway and also Casement Park. Uh, we're going to discuss this uh, with uh, two senators, Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreehan uh, who is on the phone and like John McGahan of Fine Gael, both of uh, the senators uh, live in County Louth and you're both very welcome to the programme and this is something that I think you both have a, a keen interest in. Uh, John McGahan, do you think uh, that we're going to Hear plans today for funding this project, the the narrow water bridge, uh, completely by the Irish government. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, but <clears throat> I would hate to come on local radio, Michael, and preempt mm. a decision before cabinet approval. So the process is: it has to be approved by cabinet today. 
I would really hope that is the case. I expect it to be the case. Uh, and after that, there's due to be an announcement from the three party leaders uh, at about half 12 today. So that's that's the process of it. Uh, Pre-cabinet approval usually goes ahead. I don't foresee any issues with it. Uh, and hopefully then by you know lunchtime today, we'll have a better understanding of perhaps the timelines. Uh, I do expect it to happen this year. But this is a great project. This is construction would begin this week. Yeah, year, construction yeah. Okay, begin right, this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, We've had a couple of false dawns with it before. I was only thinking this morning, one of the first interviews I ever did with you on this radio station was 10 mm. years ago as a yeah. councillor. Um, so there's been a couple of false dawns, but this is a really good thing in three major perspectives. From a tourism perspective, from a local economy perspective, and actually the powerful symbol that an hour water bridge will mm. show for both sides uh, of the communities, both north and south. I, I take it we won't hear today how much the Irish government is willing to put into this project. Uh, no, and I actually checked that out before coming on. One of the reasons is I don't even know the figure. Mm. I don't think I will be told yeah. the figure for a long time yet. Uh, there's contractual obligations here. Uh, there is a, a level of sensitivity around it. Mm. That cost will absolutely come out. Well, if you say we stage. have 40 million to spend on it, somebody's going to say, I want that, 50 million. <laughs> exactly. They, they certainly won't come back and say, I'll do it for 30. Exactly. And I think yeah. and I think, I think, think uh, some of the scars are still bared from the whole, not fiasco, but the whole issue that happened around 2012 and 2013 with a tendering process. So we have the right approach. And one thing that I would say is Louth County Council and Joan Martin in particular have been really excellent with this project in the last five or six years to come from where we were 10 years ago to now have it ready that we're going to get this bridge build it's going to be a huge symbol it's something that's been spoken about for nearly four decades Uh, and i think this is a really good news story not just for county louth but the cooley peninsula right up the Mourne coastline, right up to the Ards Peninsula. And this is going to be a really symbolic piece of infrastructure. Okay, Senator Aaron McGrehan on the phone. Uh, uh, do you uh, have uh, the same sense of all of this as uh, John McGann? Absolutely, Michael. It's a really positive day for everyone here in North Loud and, and South Down. Um, this has been a key commitment um, by Fianna Fáil for many decades, and particularly in, the, in this government. Um, and it's a proud day for all of us. Um, and what I believe is that that what is spoken about at Cabinet at the minute is that, and the sign-off today, is the, that the up-to-the-target cost of construction, and as John said mm. there, it's all commercially sensitive. So as you can imagine, as, and as you said, if we said there was X amount available, then X amount would be spent mm. um, by the tender. And so there is, um, as far as I am aware, there is um, a preferred a preferred. Uh, construction company and um, other people who applied for the tender process has their have their their process as well do you know what I mean so mm-hmm. there is there is an awful lot of kind of contractual and commercial sensitive um items in relation to the tender process however the the bottom line here today is that the cabinet after a long time of discussion an awful long lot of work by Lake County Council and the Shared Diamond Unit in the Department of the Taoiseach have this memo today um, and that we hope um, contracts would be signed um, in March 24. Mm. We're hoping that, and construction um, potentially by the end of 27. Well, I, um, I take it there's little doubt uh, that uh, it'll get approval. It's your party leader who's bringing this memo to cabinet. Yes, um, mm. I'm very, del- I'm delighted, and I and I want to thank the, the Tornister for his belief in the project, for listening to me and others over over long many years. Um, we have dreamt about this here in the Cooley Peninsula. I know that area so well. Um, I've been, I've been, you know, travelling that road at both sides, mm. the north and south, um, looking down from the Cooley Mountains. Also thinking about 
what can we change mm. and and the, and the positives of an hour water bridge could bring I was down in Bush School um, this morning uh, speaking to students and speaking to teachers and speaking to local teachers right. about this project being announced today and everyone's positive about it Michael okay. everyone is, is has a really positive things and well of course I, I mean uh, I, I, there's, there's no reason not to be positive about it and from what you're saying uh, we'll be able to use it by 2027 I take it that means that we'll be able to drive in it we'll be able to walk in it we'll be able to cycle on it uh, that, that it'll be multi-purpose in that sense yes that's the that's the current planning okay. um, and yeah. whatever has been planned for will be built it's not the planning hasn't been changed at okay. all okay John McGann um, do you think that we should build this bridge but stop let's say 50 feet short of Warren Point and ask them for a few bob to finish it well I actually think the shared island unit which is uh, funding this project along with some other key cross border infrastructure projects is a good example of the Irish government showing towards the northern community on both sides of the political divide that we are really committed to the further um, further how should I say it further building up infrastructure mm. within Northern Ireland for want of a better word and I think that's quite North-South cooperation and you uh, said it better than uh, me on the day when the British government are going to tell us that uh, the Irish government has no role in joint authority of Northern Ireland yeah and I just think I, I would find that uh, uh, difficult to take when we've seen the I find that difficult to take when we've seen the actions of the British government towards Irish relations in the last three or four years in particular. But we are very clear. Mm. We have a very good commitment towards Northern Ireland. We have a good commitment to building up our infrastructure. But why does Northern Ireland have a good commitment to us? I mean, you know, could they not make a contribution? I'm sure I'm sure at any stage you could argue that they could. But this is Mm. something from the Irish government. This Mm. is something that we are doing that would better not only people on our side of the border, but people in the northern side Mm. of the border. And one thing that I would hope the bridge could perhaps lead on to is there's a lot of calls for Ireland's ancient east, which is a board fault initiative to continue into Northern Ireland, Mm. to actually link up with Northern Ireland. And I think this. But as Eric McGreen was saying, I mean, this is going to be welcomed right across the region, right across the Cooley Peninsula, but not just uh, across the Peninsula because people will get uh, across quicker uh, and much easier uh, and much cheaper uh, and they'll end up in places like Dundalk or, or Drogheda or Dublin or Cavan Monaghan as uh, the case may be uh, why is there not a red cent being contributed by the uh, northern uh, institutions? I, I don't know is the honest mm. answer. Well because uh, we're I, deciding to do it ourselves. Yeah, well yeah pretty much well, well, but I still, I still whether they were going to give us one cent or whether they were going to give us 50% of it or 70% of it, it, it doesn't really matter mm. to me. What matters to me is that this is going to be built. And if the Irish government's commitment is to fully pay for it, to fully go for it, well, I think that's a good thing. And I think it shouldn't be a case that we decide or haggle over who mm. pays what. Like, this is a good project that we want to get built. And but, if the but, Irish but in the same way as welcome co- across uh, the Coolies and beyond, uh, it's going to be welcomed in, in Warren Point and into Newry and beyond, uh, as far as Belfast, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. And you see, this is the concept of how it's going to benefit local economies and tourism. You could be, when you mentioned there, you could be a family from North County Dublin or something. You could hop in your car, you could say, let's go the hour up the motorway, cross in, and the next thing you're spending money in, go up as far as Downpatrick, Kilkeel, Warren Point, the same will go for Omeath. A small village like Omeath on the peripheral edge of County Louth is going to have a huge economic boost and cash injection uh, with this bridge here, and I think that's a good thing. But whether who pays for it or whether we pay all of it or vice versa, 
you know, that that doesn't bear an issue with me. Mm-hmm. The issue for me is that this is going to be built and it's the Irish government are really putting forward a huge financial contribution to this and other projects. Mm. Yes, well, uh, uh, maybe Erin McGreen, we could uh, conclude on that uh, because as John McGahan says, it's not just this project. Uh, the other two big items on this are the A5 motorway and Casement Park. Uh, do you think that there should be uh, some contribution from uh, the north uh, to the Narrow Water Bridge. Do you think that people will be asking questions about that? Um, I think I think the Irish government have committed to, you know, or, or what we intend, we expect them to, to commit to the up to the target cost of construction. I suppose there will be lots of projects that the the northern the north will be investing in. You know, um, you know, from the Case and Park today, I believe there's, you know, the government will be will be cont- contributing to Case and Park Stadium. Will be funding a thirty million um, euro shared island enterprise scheme. All of these things are going to invest to improve the, the the lives of everyone on the island and the shared island unit. And that that is that is the the the, the, the main objective of the shared island unit to invest in people invest in communities all over the island uh, all over the island and if we have a strong north we have a strong south and that is the, that is the objective here and by investing in this region we're investing in north and south investing in people investing in communities and there is only a positive about that okay. because if the north is creating is 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 economic economically advanced by this we all benefit michael um, and just because they're not investing in this project, there are lots of other projects that the Northern, the Northern Executive will be investing in. And Michael McGrath, Minister for Finance, is meeting today, his counterpart in the North. So these are all positive things. We're, we're, we're getting back to business here. The North and South Ministerial Councils are back up and running. Hopefully we will have a mm. lot more announcements of a lot more positive across-border funding and across-border cooperation. It is a very okay. positive day for, for everyone here yeah, in okay. Northside and yeah. Southside. All right. Uh, yeah, on the day uh, when the British government will be on bended knee making their humble address uh, to their king, his majesty, prince or ki- King Charles. We'll <laughs> oh. let them off to do that, Michael. Yeah, well, oh, well, well, no. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, they're uh, uh, questioning... Uh, the Irish government's uh, role in Northern Ireland uh, and saying that there is uh, no uh, case for joint authority under the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how that will go down um, uh, with uh, your party leader uh, or uh, your party leader, John McGann, uh, but uh, we'll watch that space across the day. Do either of you want to comment on that before we finish up? Yeah, just very briefly. Uh, I think the approach of the British government under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss has mm. been short of more than questionable. And mm. that's me being very diplomatic in my language. I've been stronger in the Shannon about it. Uh, what we are doing is trying to do our very best, not just for the Republic of Ireland, but the island of Ireland. And we have a commitment as a government, whether it's Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, yeah. the Labour Party and the Taoiseach's office, we have a commitment as the government of is Ireland. Is it disrespecting the, the Good Friday Agreement? No, not at all. Erin McGreen, is so. it dispar- disrespecting the Good Friday Agreement? I believe so, Michael, and we've seen a lot of unilateral moves over the past couple of years in the, this current Tory government. Um, and, you know, we all have have objections to the acts there. Mm. I think hopefully we're, we're coming to a settling, a settling point. And last week, even we saw the the, the opposition, the Labour MP, Henry Benn over here, um, who is the, the shadow spokesperson on Northern Ireland. And I hope that, you know, from listening to us, um, and engaging with us before, mm. I hope they will be coming into office. I'm hope I'm hopeful about the future. 
Um, and I, we, we do see, and we have seen an awful lot of just disingenuous and unilateral moves okay. on the behalf All of right. the current government. Well, I hope for better in the future. Uh, as we heard, they'll make this humble address today. Uh, I don't know how much humility will be involved, but we leave it there. Thank you both uh, indeed. Uh, that is Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreen and in studio with us, uh, Fine Gael Senator John McGann. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Indeed, I think that there is a very strong message coming through this week's report for all of us and that is to think about home security so that you're not broken into. What we're about to hear is a number of incidents in which people have had other people break into their property. We're joined this week for this week's report by Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station and we're going to begin with the first burglary which occurred in Kells a week ago today. Yes, good morning, Michael. So firstly, St. Colin Kills Villas in Kells on Tuesday the 13th of February at around half past six in the evening, a lady returned to her home and realised it had been broken into and a number of rooms ransacked. We know this lady left at about 1.30 that day. So we're looking to speak to anyone who may have been in the area at the time. You can contact Kells Guard Station on 046 We've two more burglaries then that uh, occurred on Wednesday of last week, the 14th of February, which was St. Valentine's Day, the first of these in Moynalty. Yes, yeah, so at half past four in the afternoon, staff entered McCormick's Bar on Main Street, Moynalty, and they discovered that the premises again had been ransacked and a number of items damaged and cash stolen. We believe this happened between 11am and 4.30pm. We're looking to speak to anyone who may have been in the area at the time and notice anything Again, you can contact Kells Garda Station on 046-928-0820. The second then in Clonay. This was overnight uh, from Wednesday going into Thursday morning. Yeah, so this is in the Loch Sala area of Clonay. So on Wednesday the 14th, we received a report at about half four in the afternoon from an elderly lady who reported hearing a noise at her front door. She presumed it was a family member. However... When she checked, she saw two males leaving the house. They went on foot from her driveway and went in the direction of Dunshockland. We attended the scene and believed an attempt had been made to enter the house through the front door. The following morning, we again had to go back to the same house as it was broken into overnight and ransacked. My God. We're hoping to speak to anyone who may have seen these two males on St. Valentine's Day. Or if you're in the area and noticed anything suspicious, if you can contact Ashburn Garda Station on zero one. 8010600. Now, we'll stay in County Meath and a number of burglaries that occurred on Saturday gone by. The first you're going to report on occurred in Moynalty. Yes, so in the early hours of Saturday morning, so between 4am and 6am, a number of males entered the Moynalty service station. The males then stole a quantity of cash and other items and extensive damage was caused to the premises. The investigation team is interested in a dark-coloured car seen in the area at the time. If you were passing the service station around this time, would you have noticed anything out of the ordinary or maybe of dash cam footage? If so, the investigation team based at Kelsgarda Station can be contacted on 046-928-0820. And next to Carlinstown on Saturday when a number of burglaries occurred. Yes, yeah, so in Carlinstown area of Kells. 
and again as you say on Saturday the 17th of February and we think between 1pm and 9pm we're looking to see if there was anybody in the area at the time who saw anything suspicious something that didn't seem quite right at the time but you didn't think to call us or again who may have dash cam footage there was a number of properties broken into during this time we'd also ask local residents of the area who may have cameras on their, on their properties to look at footage of this time and if you notice anything that you think will be of interest to ourselves, we would appreciate your help. Mm-hmm. The investigation team, again, is based at Kells Garda Station. And again, their number is 046-928-0820. That's a, a lot of burglaries that occurred in County Meath over the past week alone. Uh, and it uh, does give us all reason to think about home security. The story in County Louth is no different. Uh, we begin... In County Louth, last Wednesday, once again, St. Valentine's Day and a break-in that occurred in Dundalk. Yes, so again on Wednesday the 14th, we had reported two burglaries in the Ard Esmoon area of Dundalk. Both houses were broken into during the day and ransacked. And again, items stolen from both homes. If you were in the area on Valentine's afternoon and noticed anything suspicious between 1 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the evening... We're asking you to contact Gardaí at Dundalk Garda Station on 042-9388-400. Next to Dunlear and a burglary that occurred on Friday gone by. Yes, so this burglary happened at Rath Gregory in Dunlear at around 7.45. A homeowner received a call that their house alarm was going off. When they got home, they realised it had been broken into and again ransacked and also a number of items taken. We're hoping to speak to anybody who was in the area at the time and maybe you noticed a vehicle or a person that might be of interest to us. You can contact Dunlear Garda Station on 041-685-1202. We go to Dundalk or return to Dundalk uh, where another burglary occurred on Saturday. Yes, again, Saturday the the 17th of February in the Newtown Braglan area of Dundalk a homeowner left the house shortly before 7pm. They returned at 9pm and discovered the door was forced open and the house ransacked. And again, a number of items stolen from the home. They were asking if anybody noticed anything suspicious in the area to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-9388-400. We go back a, a little bit further in time uh, for the next couple of burglaries to Thursday week ago, the 8th of February, and uh, to begin uh, one that occurred in Jenkinstown. Yes, so we're looking to speak to anybody who may have been in the area between 4 and 6 um, in Jenkinstown on Thursday the 8th of February. A homeowner again was out of the house and when they returned, the house was ransacked and a small amount of cash was taken. And, and then on the same... Yes. Yep, sorry, Michael. No, you go ahead. Same on day. On the same day, between 6.30 and 6.45pm, an elderly couple in the Ravensdale area heard banging at the back door. They discovered that the door had been prized open and fortunately in this incident, no one came into their home. If you contact Dundalk at the station on 042-9388-400, we'll pass your details on to the investigating member if you have any information in relation to those two crimes. Okay, and both of those crimes occurred Thursday week ago, the 8th of February, as you say, and obviously the message is to think about home security for our listeners. Absolutely, Michael. And if you do see something suspicious, we would prefer to go and find nothing is wrong um, a dozen times over than have to go to these burglaries because they're devastating for homeowners and for families. 
to have that intrusion into your home. Okay, Garda Olgebeken of Trim Garda Station. Thank you very much indeed for this week's report. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. But that's where we leave you for today with uh, thanks as always to Maggie McGuire who researched and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.